So I thought, I've got to stop being Mr. Anti-Advisor, although many advisors still think I am satanic in my opposition to what they do and stand for. I'm not. Welcome to the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast, where we help you become a better investor with index funds and ETFs. I'm Dan Bordelotti, and this is episode 18. Financial journalism is a tough career these days, and not just because traditional media jobs are disappearing. One of the challenges is staying relevant to investors in various circumstances. For example, writing for both wealthy retirees and millennials with smaller nest eggs and very different priorities. And if you've been writing about money for many years and you're under pressure to crank out new material every week, it's difficult to resist the temptation to just write about every new product or fad that comes along. And that's what makes Rob Carrick, at least in my opinion, the top personal finance journalist in Canada. Rob has been writing about money in the Globe and Mail for some 20 years now, and he's more relevant than ever. What makes his work stand out from that of his peers is that he understands the way the average Canadian thinks about personal finance issues. He doesn't just interview industry professionals or self-proclaimed experts. He gets down on the ground with individual investors, whether it's 20-somethings struggling to save for a down payment or 70-year-olds worried about old-age security clawbacks. Rob lives and works in Ottawa, but during one of his recent visits in Toronto, I invited him to sit down with me and share his decades of experience. And I'm very pleased to welcome to the studio Rob Carrick from the Globe and Mail. Rob, thanks for coming in. Glad to, glad to do it, Dad. All right. Now, Rob, you've been a financial journalist for a long time. You started at the Globe, I believe, in 1998. So it's been 20 years or so that you've been doing this. And you've always been a real investor advocate, you know, a guy who has held the industry's feet to the fire. And, in you know, I look back, people have been doing this as long as you have there's a lot of other veteran journalists who, let's face it, have kind of lost their edge a little bit. So I wanted to ask you how you've managed to stay passionate about what you do and how do you stay relevant to readers who, many of whom are a generation younger than you now? Well, you know what? The, the key for me is using my everyday life to uh, explain and inform me about what is important in personal finance. I don't just sit there like in this ivory tower talking to portfolio managers and economists. I mean, a lot of the column ideas are generated by questions I'm asking about my finances, my wife is asking me, my kids are asking me, um, that my colleagues are asking me, family members. So I've got like, I call it my network. And basically, what are they interested in? What are they afraid of? What's, get, what's on their radar? And that all feeds into what I'm doing. And everything is always changing. You know what I mean? Since the financial crisis in 08, 09, the pace of change has probably tripled from what it was before. So even things I thought I knew five and 10 years ago, I'm reconsidering now because the facts are different. The environment's different. And that helps keep me fresh. Yeah, I think a lot of times the, um, you know, practitioners or people who write about the theory of investing, I often wonder sometimes if they've ever actually talked to investors. So you're, you're right on the ground with that. You must receive a ton of reader email. You meet people at events and things like that. So you kind of I understand do. what they want to do. And one of the reasons why I almost never turn down an invitation to do an event, moderate a panel, speak or whatever is because it's an opportunity for me to hear what they want to know. What insights do they have and what questions do they have? And that helps me go back and think, well, I think I need to look into this more, or I think I need to explain to people why this is happening. And so it's always a good two-way dialogue with, with the readers. Can you uh, think back over your years doing this and sort of what you thought were priorities at the beginning of your career and how you've learned that maybe those things 
aren't so important anymore, and that maybe what investors really want to know is not what you originally thought they needed to well, know. Well, here's, here's an interesting take on all this that I think you'll relate to. When I started doing my column, I got very quickly immersed in you know how investors were being persecuted and you know how evil advisors in the investment industry was. And so I got right up on my soapbox and I started hammering the industry. And then I got to know more advisors and I thought, wow, that's actually, it's more complicated. There are many good advisors out there. So the problem is that we're, we're sort of co-opted by the stories about the bad ones because they are egregious and very, very bad in many cases. So I thought, I've got to stop being Mr. Anti-Advisor, although many advisors still think I am satanic in my opposition to what they do and stand for. I'm not. What I'm trying to do is create sort of a basis of knowledge about what good advisors do. And so people will say, wow, I've got a bad one. I better go find a good one. So I, I, I find that people almost expect me to slam advisors and fees now, but I'm less inclined to do it. I'm more about being against bad practices than advisors, period. And I'm more and more, if you saw my email in basket and the questions people are asking, the nitty gritty financial planning questions and questions about investing, and I want to get into yes, but I don't know how, they need advisors. Some of these people are not going to be effective DIYers. Some may be suitable for robo-advisors, but I think some need an advisor. So it's convinced me that there's a definite market for advice um, and how do we ensure good outcomes, good advisors and clients finding their way to these people and exiting stage left from the bad players out there, the fun salespeople, you know, the careless people and the aggressively predatory people. And I, I, I think that one of the occupational hazards of, of your job and in, in some ways mine as well is that, you know, eventually you get a little exasperated with individual investors who are always placing all of the blame on the industry, on fees and things like that and not taking any responsibility for themselves. And you talked about it in a recent article that you had written about how some mutual funds still charge trailing commissions, even if they're held by an online brokerage. So that trailing commission is supposed right. to be for advice. The online brokerage doesn't offer any advice. And you know, I realize that writers don't write headlines, but I mean, the headline of that piece was, was it sorry investors, but this time I'm not defending you. And yeah, the idea I, was sometimes you really have to do your own research if you're going to call yourself a DIY advisor. I'm investor. glad you brought that one up because I took a bit of a roasting from the investor advocates out there. I'm doing air quotes around that. Um, they thought it was a betrayal and how could I say such a thing? And I'm afraid that I do think in this case, I, I think it's on you if you made that mistake. Now, but what did surprise me afterward is that a few people who consider themselves very savvy, including one who actually worked in the mutual fund industry himself, said, holy cow, I was caught by that. I owned A-series funds in my online brokerage account, and I didn't realize that I could have maybe had a D-series version with a much lower fee, reflecting the fact that I'm a DIYer. But you know what? I do think in online brokers have been getting a free ride here by selling these A-series funds and collecting the trailers, but it's the most avoidable problem ever. Buy a D-series, buy an ETF. It's so simple. No one's twisting your arm. You're not locked in a box with these, uh, with these products. And so I did say in that particular case, um, it's on you. And I was a bit exasperated at all the pleading that, no, this is like the evil investment industry out to get people. You know what? It's the greedy investment industry and you put yourself in a position where they could take advantage. Right. 
Now, you and I have both uh, both have kids around the same age in their early 20s, just about to launch their careers and hopefully leave the nest and become less financially dependent on their parents uh, shortly. Um, in terms of economic outlook, when you consider our kids' generation versus uh, our opportunities when we were their age, are you optimistic or do you really wish that maybe your sons could have had the same opportunities that you had? I wish my sons could have graduated into the world I graduated in. It was... It was far less challenging to navigate. Like, I don't want to be overly negative about today's world. It is what it is. And there are lots of young people are getting good jobs and starting great careers. But I think the, the level of friction that you have to go through to get yourself into that good job is significantly worse now than it was for me. Um, you know, when I was uh, graduated from journalism school, it was the mid-80s, just the aftermath of a very severe recession. And I was told, oh, newspapers are, you know, retrenching. They're not hiring as much. But I didn't really notice that. You know, at journalism school, the newspapers all came on campus to recruit people. Those days are completely, if you're graduating from journalism school, it's very tough to get yourself a short-term contract, never mind a career-building permanent position. And I think that applies to so many professions. The business world has moved over to the contract model, the temporary work, and it applies to so many different professions. And if you don't have that career-building first, uh, first job, you're losing out on so much pensions, you're losing out on benefits, you're losing out on mentoring and opportunities to, you know, take side, uh, you know, go off on tangents in your career and learn new skills and then come back to what you were doing and meet interesting people. And I think that's a definite, uh, definite change for the worse. And um, it's a fact of life. And you know what, the best thing we can do for young people is not complain about this, it's to teach them to navigate it. But nevertheless, it is worse in that regard. I do think so. Hmm. Now, I think one of the things that you'd agree um, has improved for the millennial generation is the opportunities uh, for efficient, low-cost investing, for example. Certainly, the products are better now uh, than they were. The uh, The choices are greater. And one of the things that uh, has really been at the forefront of that trend is robo-advisors, which have been in Canada now for four or five years. In your last review, you've done uh, a couple in the globe now of sort of a review of robo-advisors. And, uh, you know, you said it, it's time to stop treating them as a novelty and time to start treating them as a real option for people to build portfolios. Looking back over the last four or five years, how that space has evolved, where do you think it's gaining the most traction? What, what sorts of investors are most attracted to that option? Well, it's interesting. You know, there's my perception uh, based on just interacting with people. Then there's what the robo-advisors themselves tell me. The, the robo-advisors themselves tell me that they are getting a lot of clients in their 40s, like Gen Xers, which makes sense because that's when you really start to get serious about investing, ideally. Uh, and... Um, but my perception is the buzz factor is mainly millennials. You know, I think it really resonates with them, this idea of using technology to take all this money I have that I want to invest, but I don't know what I'm doing. And they take this money and presto, I have a disciplined portfolio, you know, monitored on an ongoing basis. So I think it's really... It's really ideal for the person who wants to get involved in investing and everything else is sort of a bit hazy, but they do understand the need to invest. And I think robo-advisors are a great way to go is like, ready, set, go, I've got a portfolio. And I think that's a huge, a huge benefit to the, to the marketplace. Now, there's a lot of them out there in Canada. Um, presumably, most of them have not gathered very many assets. And the low fees that they charge make it difficult as a business proposition. So how do you see the space evolving? Are we going to see um, you know, banks buying out some of the smaller firms, larger firms eating up the smaller ones, robo-advisors changing their model to include more financial planning? Where do you see that going? I would say all of the above. 
Although I'm, I don't really know if the banks are that keen for this. I know RBC has one. I actually set up an account at it just to test it out. Mm -hmm. And I, I, BMO has one. None of the others have really jumped with both feet. And I think their banks don't want to be left out of what could be a, an interesting category. So they're putting their feet in there. I don't really get a strong a sense of a strong commitment from them. So I don't know where the banks stand on it. Um, but we've got 14 odd names, way too many. It's absurd. What um, I, I think we can explain that as sort of, it's sort of the incubating period where we've got all these eggs, which ones are going to hatch into real robo-advisors firms, far fewer than they are. Now, I expect significant acquisitions. I'm wondering why those haven't already started to happen. I really wonder why some of the firms are even bothering at this point. Um, there's a lot of investment industry I peaked people I speak to who aren't robo-advisor people, um, but who are pretty savvy about how the marketplace works and they cannot figure out how any of them are ever going to make money. Um, and you were talking about them evolving. One of the reasons is that um, if they're good, they're not going to evolve to have more technology. They're going to evolve to have more human touch. And of course, that means human beings on the payroll and that's going to elevate costs. And then all of a sudden, the 50 basis points are 0.5% that they're charging. Does that really allow for them to have a staff of, um, of people who are, um, you know, are qualified to build portfolios? I don't know. Here's an interesting thing. All the companies I talk to in fintech, robo-advisors included, keep telling me, oh yeah, we're we could see ourselves getting into smart loans and credit cards and insurance. So that tells me this is, it's problematic to be a mono line in the financial, be a robo-advisor or an online borrowing kind of person and make a go of it during that. They're all going to be adding things. I don't think that makes sense to me as a personal finance columnist and consumer of financial products. Uh, but nevertheless, that does seem to be where things are going. Yeah, it's interesting. It sort of circles back to what we were talking about earlier is that when you, know, when you start as a uh, financial journalist, you start to think what people are really interested in is investment solutions, right? We need to lower fees. We need to create better portfolios. We need to get broader diversification, all these sort of technical things, all of which are important. But at the end of the day, what people want is should I put my money in an RSP or should I use it to pay off my mortgage? And those are solutions that my guess is robo-advisors underestimated the hand-holding that they would need. You know, you dismiss the advice and you say all people need is a well-diversified portfolio and they should only pay half a percent for it. They don't need anything else. And the truth is they probably do need something else. And if they do – it's pretty hard to offer that service at half a percent. It is. Now, I think the robo service at its core is extremely valuable. And I'm considering one of my missions in my job is to make robo-advisors more acceptable to the masses, not to make sure more people use them, but to make sure more people consider them as an option. Because I think there's a lot of people floating out in space doing nothing or else running around in circles who would be way better off having their money at a robo-advisor. But you're totally right. There needs to be an advice component. So how does that ha happen? It could be that I have a fee for service financial planner who I pay an hourly or a flat rate to, and I, and I say to them, RSP or TFSA, pay down my debt. You know, what do you advise about how much insurance I need? And they give me an asset mix, and I go over to my robo advisor and I say, well, this is really what I need to realize my goals, make it happen, and run it. And so they work in tandem. Um, maybe the robo advisors will create sort of a personal, uh, a financial planning desk. And if I've got a, I can make an appointment and Skype in or call in, and I pre-told them what my problem is, and they will prepare like a fifteen-minute speech on what I should do. Maybe that's the model. Um, there. 
there's no question that really, I think deep down when people ask questions and you were getting onto this, it's a financial planning question, not really an investing question, but we've trained people to think investing is everything. That's how you realize all your goals is by being a smart investor. And they, and you know, the financial planning slash investment advice industry is, is guilty of this because they're the ones who made it all about investing and they embedded their advice fees in their investment fees. Um, we need people to sort of say, okay, how would I get the planning? Maybe my robo could offer it to me. Maybe I have to pay a little extra for it. Maybe I'll get a a la carte planning thing going. Uh, Maybe my accountant will do it. I don't know, but I think you're right. I think for the holistic view to be completely healthy, you're going to need some financial planning mixed in there at strategic moments. Now, I think only high net worth people need constant planning, but even the lowest net worth people need sort of real time. I'm thinking of buying a house can I afford it? And I want you to tell me not can I afford it just in terms of what the bank looks at, but will I be able to save for retirement and put money in RESPs and have a little bit of financial freedom? That's stuff a planner can tell you. Yeah, and that's a, it, it's a partly a regulatory issue too, right? I mean, one of the challenges has always been that um, the media love to tell people to use fee-only financial planners. Uh, and then people are surprised to learn that most fee-only financial planners can't manage your investments because they're not licensed to. Right. That's, so I that did, is a problem. I definitely see the robo-advice model evolving in a way where financial planners can do the planning and then farm out the investment management to a licensed portfolio Well, it's manager. interesting you mention that because I was just talking to a guy who has set up a – uh, a, a subscription, he calls a subscription, subscription-based financial planning service for high net worth investors. I was looking at the fees and they're stiff. Okay, this is not for the masses. But I said, do those include investments? He says, no, I just refer people to a robo-advisor with which we have negotiated a reduced fee. So there's a perfect example of you know planners and robo-advisors coming together saying, you do what you do, I'll do what I do. We will mutually refer people and together uh, we'll provide a very nicely priced uh, full package, and you know, so the questions about the big picture stuff get answered, and the it's all you know the investments in terms of being used as tools to make the plan happen. The robo advisor runs that. Yeah, it seems to me that in many ways the investment piece has more or less been solved in the sense that you know building a well diversified low-cost, easy-to-manage portfolio is very straightforward now. And I'm not sure how much we can improve it by creating new products and new models. I mean, that to me, that's kind of the easy part. The financial planning is the piece that will always be an ongoing issue that changes depending on every individual. Because of where you are and the firm you work at, I'm sure that in terms of the low-cost investing solution being pretty much solved, I'm sure that is the orthodoxy here. But where I am, sort of like in the the crossroads of investing, not a lot of people do not accept that. For instance, I hear endlessly about how this being a terrible time, I would never put a client in a in an index product right now because you know we're ready for a bear market, and you just wouldn't want to be in something that tracks the TSX, or you wouldn't want to be in something that tracks the uh, you know the Universe Bond Index. You know, I I wouldn't do that, and I can add value, and I, I hear this all the time. So although the index, the passive index approach has gained huge popularity and is is much more part of the mainstream now than it ever has been. There's a lot, still a lot of pushback on it from people who make their living charging investment fees and, that are much larger than the index and they have, to, they have to talk their book and talk about how great they are. So um, I think when 
There are a lot of great solutions. There's many firms working with ETFs. There's robo-advisors. There's online brokerage firms that don't charge any fees to let people invest in ETFs. The noise people are hearing when they interact with the mainstream investment industry, though, they're going to hear a lot of stuff that tells them, oh, no, indexing is very bad. The same thing they would have heard 15 years ago. Yeah, it's interesting how you know things don't change, even though we think they have. And I, I admit, you know, sometimes we're in a bit of a bubble here because the clients that we we meet with every day and the other advisors that we talk to have a similar investment philosophy. It's sometimes easy to lose sight of the fact that a lot of other people don't think this way at all. And in fact, you know, their whole value proposition is almost the antithesis of what we do. It, you know, if you talk to people in the ETF industry who have the outreach job, in the mutual fund industry, I guess you call them wholesalers, but they're basically outreach people going to spread the message about ETFs. They figure that the whole body of advisors out there is probably not, is barely touched. You know, ETFs, they have these dreams of growing as big as mutual funds right now. They're about one-tenth. The way they're going to do it, it's not convincing individual investors to do it. It's, it's convincing the masses of, of advisors out there who have not accepted indexing, who don't believe in it. Or if they do, it's a little, little tiny eyedropper full of their portfolio to cover off something that they, oh, I can't do that as well. But I can do everything else better than, than passive. So although I think passive is, is, uh, is legit and strong and growing, it's still a smaller piece of the pie than everything else. It's also interesting to see how the ETF um, industry and, and how the uh, talk in the advisory industry has evolved since ETFs came on the scene. Um, we're still hearing people say things like, you know, mutual funds are superior to ETFs when what they really mean is active management is superior to indexing. And there's this blurring of the lines between product and strategy. Um, you've been very good in your work to remind people that, you know, it's not about individual products. It's not always about getting the lowest MER from an ETF. There are times when mutual funds might be appropriate. And here I'm saying from my point of view, an index mutual fund as opposed to an actively managed fund. But yeah, can you talk a little bit about how people kind of look at investing as you know, acquiring products rather than focusing on an overall strategy? Well, it's so true that, it, that we're focused on the micro issues, like what stock, what sector, what mutual fund, like as if that's where the success comes in. To my mind, you know, what's going to put you mostly on the road to success is committing to putting money in some sort of a reasonably sensible investment on a regular basis for decades. Okay, do that. And I'm not going to worry too, too much about what you pick. Yes, you might make more, you might make less, but really it's the commitment to doing this. Then you want to pick what is the tool that I'm going to use to make this happen. Um, that's where people obsess. Now, do you remember the mutual fund craze, like the, the Altamira equity fund days when everybody was like so obsessed on picking the right mutual mm -hmm. fund? There were mutual funds that were as hot as, as marijuana stocks are today. Um, and it all went by the wayside and it now moved into other things. You know, you talk to advisors and they're all hot about certain, you know, SMAs and, um, you know, various wrap products, proprietary things and notes and all kinds of junky stuff. I think, you know what, I think if you're, in the advice business, and all you really do is sell investments, you have to be excited about product and not process because that's all you got. Mm -hmm. You're a salesperson and I need things to sell and I need to get people to buy and sell and churn. And that is why I think there's still so much attention on the hot this of the moment. And, um, you know, I think that a lot of wealth is being destroyed in that focus and this search for the optimum thing when something adequate is, is really what you want. 
All right, let's shift gears a little bit, Rob. I can't have you on the podcast without bringing up a topic that you write about so frequently, and that is why every Canadian should buy a house now. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm kidding, of course. So you've, you've written pretty extensively about, you know, the decision to, to rent versus own, uh, misconceptions about home ownership as, you know, the, the basis of everyone's retirement plan. So it's a big topic, but... I continue to hear even young people dumping on renting. Like I thought it was kind of something that our parents' generation just would never accept. But in fact, it's my kids' generation also feel like renting is flushing money down the toilet and you have to get in. So why isn't the message getting through? Dan, it's the kids' lips that are moving, but it's the parents' voice you're hearing when it comes to how how bad renting is. You know what? Home ownership has been the biggest financial home run Canadians have ever hit and nothing like it will ever happen again in my lifetime. I'm pretty sure of that, you know, this idea of houses doubling and tripling and quadrupling in value and all you had to do was just buy a house and sit there and pay your mortgage. And everybody was so excited about that. It has completely altered our thinking and our rational um, looking at, at houses and what they are. I have absolutely no problem with people renting. In fact, I, you know, if my boys want to rent uh, and never own, I'll, you know, um, it's fine by me. I'll make sure I under, they understand the alternative path to wealth building, which is like taking all the money that you're not pouring into your house and putting it into a sensible long-term investment portfolio. But you'll have a very liquid um, hard asset at the end that you can, this investment portfolio that you can use. The person who owns the house has a building, which is great if you want to live in it, but if you uh, want to extract money out of it, very tough to do. You have to actually borrow against your own your own assets. So, um, but we've all been, you know, it all comes down to low interest rates, right? Houses, the, the cost of financing house went on this mega sale, multi-year, and everyone thought, I got to have one of those. Look at the great results everybody's getting. And now here we are in 2018, and the market looks a bit squishy. I'm not, I don't really know which way it's going to go. But what I do know is that if you buy a house today and you push yourself to the max to afford it, there is no way in hell you're going to make as much as your parents did on their house. No way. And so you're going to endure a lot of financial pain and discomfort. You're probably going to penalize your retirement. You're going to penalize your kids' uh, savings for university, all to buy this asset that isn't going to do what you think it's going to do. And renting is not paying your landlord's mortgage. Renting is buying a commodity, a place to live, and it's choosing to use a ton of your other money on other things. Very valid. It's a, it's a real cultural thing, I think, too. I mean, if you look at other places in the world, in Europe, for example, I think renting doesn't have the same stigma that it does here. Um, I'm wondering if something dramatic needs to happen in Canada before it becomes an acceptable practice. And when I say that, I mean like a 2007-style crash like, like happened in the U.S. You know, I think a crash, let me be a contrarian for a moment, I think a crash might be the best thing to happen for millennials who want to get into the housing market ever. Now, if you can get mortgage rates to start tracking backwards and you get a housing crash, a lot of people, if they just hang on, are going to find now it's go time for home ownership. I really think so. But if, assuming that doesn't happen, I'm going, to, I'm going to suggest that we have a very slow, gradual realization that renting is just a rational response to super expensive housing. But this is a problem I'm just starting to come to grips with. Renting is super expensive in Toronto, super expensive. Um, I'm confident that renting remains solidly cheaper than owning, but this idea of renting leaving with all this extra money that you can do cool things with like saving or whatever, the high cost of rent in Toronto is really putting a crimp in that. All right. Now, just 
to wrap up, you know, I've always felt it's important for those of us with some presence in the media who speak to the public about investing to to practice what we preach and to kind of eat our own cooking. So um, you've never really been um, ideological in terms of investment philosophy, but I thought it would be interesting to just ask you how you invest your own money. Well, if you, if you don't mind me, I'll take you through the, the stages of my investments. Uh, I got sort of serious saving for retirement. I left a previous job, took a buyout, and my bank said, oh, you should really invest it with our brokerage division. And I thought, okay, because I knew nothing about finance. And I ended up with a bunch of you know, clunky old mutual funds. And I was looking at these things and I'm thinking, what is this? This something just did not compute. I never seemed to be making any money. They had ginormous fees. I, my broker never talked to me. And of course he wouldn't because I was like a smallest of a minnow as clients go. And so, you know what I did? I said, you know what? I told him, I said, you know what? I'm just going to move it over to the online brokerage division of your bank. And he said, that's fine. I, I couldn't care less really because <laughs> you're too small. Over that period of time, I bought individual stocks, mostly dividend growth stocks. I used ETFs and I bought individual bonds and GICs. And I sometimes got a little cute and, you know, did stupid stuff. But mostly, I, you know, I wasn't really taking wildflowers or anything. But, you know, I had a, a realization about 24 months ago that I wasn't really giving it my full attention because I was, t I was tapped out. I, you know, I write about money for a living and I go home. I don't want to just open up my accounts and start figuring out, you know, how to rebalance and everything or what should I be buying this or selling this. So I found a, an asset management company, I'll say, that looks after my money now. And I just basically send it to them and they, they take care of it. And because uh, I, I just thought I, I, I don't enjoy it because it's like more work. It's like moonlighting. And, um, and I wasn't giving it my all. So I thought I had to find, but that was a very specific opinion for me. Um, um, there's other accounts that I that I have, like family and spousal, et cetera, that were uh, – it's ETFs all the way. So it's – the truth is finally out, Rob, that you found a non-satanic advisor who you actually uh, use to manage your own portfolio. Yeah, more or less, more or less. Yeah, it's true. You know what? I, I just thought need help. That's – you know, that's why they exist, Right. I think it, it's it's telling, you know, that someone even who writes about it for a living, you know, recognizes that we all have our own strengths and we also all have limited amount of time. And uh, it makes sense sometimes to uh, just farm out a responsibility that you're not prepared to do yourself. Exactly. You know what? And I couldn't be happier. I feel so good. Not, I, I don't even focus on the results. I just focus on the fact that it's all happening and I don't have to do it. Sounds good. All right. Thanks again for joining us, Rob. I appreciate it. Glad to do it, Dan. Now it's time for another installment of Bad Investment Advice, where we turn the spotlight on lousy ideas in the financial media. This time around, I'm going to highlight a recent article in the venerable Wall Street Journal called The Personalized Indexed Fund's Time May Be Near. Now this article opens with the line, quote, Someday soon your favorite index could be, literally, the index of your favorite stocks, close quote. It goes on to describe how investors may soon be able to establish a set of rules for screening, selecting, and then purchasing a portfolio of stocks based on whatever criteria they choose. For example, you might tell your brokerage's software that you want to start by considering all large-cap U.S. stocks with a 5-star rating on Morningstar, and then selecting only those that have a 10-year history of rising dividends. You would then set up rules for how much weight to assign to each stock or each basket of stocks, how frequently you want to rebalance, click a button, and then presto, you've created what the article calls your own, quote, personal index fund. 
One of the expert sources in the article compares this process to ordering a chipotle. Quote, all of the ingredients are out there, he says, and you order whatever looks good to you. Now, the article frames all of this as a good thing for at least two main reasons. The first is that these personalized funds will have no management fees. As another source in the piece says, quote, as cheap as index funds are, the truth is that investment firms have been overcharging people for simply putting stocks into groups. You don't need that middleman anymore, close quote. But more important than the lack of management fees, the argument continues, is that this kind of personalization can improve your results by eliminating the flaws in traditional index funds. Now, the premise here is that the low cost and broad diversification of indexing are good, but traditional indexes still contain a lot of quote-unquote bad companies along with the good ones, or they give too much weight to overvalued companies and not enough to those that are underpriced. So by tweaking the rules any way you want, you can make the indexes better. Okay, let's take a step back and consider whether this personal index fund, if such a thing ever comes to pass, really would be a benefit for investors. Because as you've probably guessed, I think it's a terrible idea. And I think it's highly misleading to suggest that it has anything at all to do with indexing. It's just a way of repackaging old-fashioned stock picking. Now, this argument might make sense if your alternative was purchasing narrowly focused sector ETFs. For example, iShares has a Canadian ETF covering the technology sector in which four stocks make up 80% of the exposure. This fund has an MER of 0.61%, which is very pricey by ETF standards. So in this case, sure, screening for a small number of tech stocks and buying them individually is probably a better alternative than using an expensive, poorly diversified ETF. But I would argue an even better alternative is not to screen for tech stocks in the first place and to simply use an ETF that tracks the broad market. Bottom line, no strategy available to retail investors is cheaper than traditional indexing unless it also comes with a trade-off in diversification. Now let's consider the second argument that personalization offers some improvement over traditional index funds. This is the real flaw in the whole idea, because the whole concept of screening for stocks that meet certain criteria isn't exactly new, it's just usually known by another name, active management. Right now it might be impractical, even impossible for the average retail investor to build sophisticated stock screens that identify companies that meet a number of criteria, but that's exactly what active advisors and mutual fund managers are doing all the time. So I think we need to reframe this whole idea of retail investors using software to build a personal index fund. What they would really be doing is building a personal active fund. Now with that in mind, DIY stock screens are cheaper than paying an advisor or fund manager to do this for you, but I think investors who are considering this need to be humble and consider whether they really have the skills they need to build a properly diversified equity portfolio on their own. The Wall Street Journal article suggests that DIY screens will allow investors to build indexes, quote, just as good as what the experts do. But I think this is naive. A well-constructed index isn't as simple as it might appear. If you don't believe me, just look up the methodology for a traditional index like the S&P TSX Composite, which covers the broad Canadian stock market. 
There are criteria for market capitalization, liquidity, the size of the company's float, which is the number of shares actively traded as opposed to held privately. There are limits on the size of any individual component, a process for additions and deletions, and so on. These rules are all in place because trading a large basket of stocks on an exchange brings a number of practical and logistical challenges that can be mitigated. A homemade stock screen probably isn't going to manage these hurdles as well as a professionally designed index. Look, I'm all for personalization when it comes to choosing options for your car, your iTunes playlist, or your burrito from Chipotle. But one of the key ideas behind index investing is that your personal convictions about which stocks are likely to outperform have no value. On the contrary, most of the time your active decisions will have a negative impact. If you're a stock picker and you're looking for a cheap and easy way to execute your active strategies, then this kind of software sounds like a boon for you. But to suggest that it can be used to build a personal index fund is nothing but bad investment advice. And we're going to round off this episode with another installment of Ask the Spud, where we answer investing questions from readers and listeners. Here with me, as always, with this month's question is my colleague, Amanda Diel. All right. So this time our question is from Jeremy, who writes, I'm having trouble controlling the temptation to invest in ETFs that focus on robotics, AI, and electronic payments, when it's reasonable to expect these sectors will experience significant growth in the coming years. I realize there's no guarantee of appreciation, but with such a clear economic trend towards automation, I can't see why investment in sectors like these isn't warranted. Thanks, Amanda. At some point in our lives as investors, I think all of us have asked a question like this because it is so eminently reasonable on its surface. If you want to identify a good investment, why not focus your search on the sectors and businesses that seemed poised for growth? As Jeremy identifies these days, that would include technology such as artificial intelligence, automation, and others that are likely to replace humans in a variety of occupations. We can all agree that these are growth industries, and they're likely to see better days ahead compared with, say, bookstores and movie theaters. So what's wrong with this way of thinking? Why not tilt your portfolio to these sectors? Well, the problem here is a basic misunderstanding about how stocks are priced. The price of a stock is not determined by the company's current assets or its current sales or its current profitability, or at least those are only part of the picture. Ultimately, the price of a stock reflects investors' expectations for what the company will do in the future. So let's consider a couple of real-world examples. As of early July, Tesla Motors had a market capitalization of more than $57 billion, a little higher than that of General Motors, $55 billion, and significantly more than Ford, about $44 billion. That is certainly not because Tesla has more money in the bank, sells more cars, or makes bigger profits than GM and Ford. Another example, in early July, Amazon was the second largest company in the world with a market cap of about $805 billion, and yet it has only been occasionally profitable and it's never paid a dividend to its shareholders. It should be clear from these examples that the stock market settles on a company's value not based on what it has done in the past, but on expectations for the future. The market expects that your kids will be driving more electric cars and fewer F-150s. It expects that all of the things that Amazon is doing, and that's a pretty comprehensive list nowadays, will replace existing businesses and technologies and eventually make that company far more profitable than it is today. 
From time to time, all stocks will experience a day of reckoning when investors decide whether their expectations were met. Now, I'm simplifying things here a bit, but in general, if expectations were exceeded, the stock will go up, and if they fell short, the stock will typically go down. The absolute numbers don't necessarily matter. If a company announces that it made $50 million in profits last quarter, its stock could still fall if shareholders had been expecting $80 million. On the other hand, a company could surprise investors with results that were mediocre, but still better than anticipated, and the stock might benefit from a big bump. The point here is that it's not just about the outcome, it's about the outcome relative to what was expected. So over the next decade or so, it's quite possible that Tesla will sell a lot of cars, but not as many as the market anticipated when it valued the company at $57 billion. And Ford might lose a chunk of its market share, but still fare better than the market had priced in. If both of those things come to pass, then Ford's stock would likely deliver a better return than Tesla's. To return to our question about investing in robotics, AI, and electronic payments, Jeremy's almost certainly correct about the potential for these sectors to grow, but the market knows this already, and that growth potential is baked into the prices of the stocks in this sector. This is what we mean when we say that the stock market is efficient. It's very good at measuring the consensus of all buyers and sellers, and then arriving at an equilibrium price. What this ultimately means is that publicly available information about a company does not give you an edge. If you want to reliably outperform the market by picking stocks or sectors, then you need facts or data that have somehow escaped the notice of other market participants. And that includes stock analysts and hedge fund managers who are highly skilled and highly motivated. If you know something that they don't, then you're probably misinformed or you're trading illegally as an insider. The financial advisor and author Larry Swedro explained it like this, quote, Every time you hear or read financial news or a recommendation on a stock or asset class, technology stocks, small caps, emerging markets, etc., ask yourself, am I the only one who knows this information? If the answer is no, the market has already incorporated that information into prices, and the information can't be exploited. Possession of an insight isn't sufficient. You can only benefit if other traders don't have this insight. Close quote. Swedro also uses an analogy that I think is helpful. Consider the practice of betting on sporting events. Now, I don't mean to imply here that investing is like gambling. It's not. But there is a parallel here that drives home the idea of how an efficient market works. I love my Toronto Blue Jays, but this season's edition is something of a disaster, whereas the New York Yankees, on the other hand, are a much stronger team. So if you went to Vegas to bet on a Jays-Yankees game, why wouldn't you just pick the Yankees to win? Why would you ever pick an underdog like the Blue Jays in a matchup like this? Well, if you know anything about sports betting, the answer is easy, because the bookmakers set the odds in such a way that you need to bet more on the favorite than on the underdog to win the same amount of money. The sports betting market, just like the stock market, efficiently factors in all known information when it sets these odds. So they consider not only the overall strength of each team, but also home field advantage, the starting pitchers, which players are injured, and so on. And because of this, knowing that the Yankees are better than the Blue Jays doesn't give you any advantage at all. Indeed, if you bet on all the favorites and your buddy bet on all the underdogs over a period of several seasons, chances are that your overall results would be similar. 
So once you accept that the market is highly efficient and that you have almost zero chance of having exclusive knowledge, the logical conclusion is to simply participate in the whole market rather than betting on the favorite, so to speak, by picking individual stocks and sectors. And the way to do that is to buy an index fund that tracks the broad market at extremely low cost. I hope that answers your question, Jeremy. If you've got an investing question that you'd like Dan to answer on the podcast, please send it to mail at canadiancouchpotato.com and you may hear it featured on a future installment of Ask the Spud. That's all we've got for this episode of the Canadian Couch Potato Podcast. Thanks as always to Nick Jaworski, our producer, and Hunter McKinnon of Truly Social for making sure I meet my deadlines. We're going to take a short break for the rest of the summer. We'll be back with a new episode in September. Stay cool. We'll speak to you then.